chapter 12. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, say yes, that really is an organization, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illnesses in the United States. Over 40 million Americans report experiencing some kind of anxiety disorder. Now, this should be somewhat surprising to us because we often associate anxiety and worry with maybe poverty and deprivation, and yet we are the richest nation that has ever existed in human history, yet we have apparently more anxiety and depression and hopelessness in our country. You think, well, maybe that's because we don't have enough resources. Well, I would say we are probably a society that has more access to mental health resources and psychologists and therapists than really anywhere else in the world. Think about the last two years. The last two years have brought tremendous added stress. We had a, you remember, COVID-19, and then there was the summer with all the protests and the riots. There was political turmoil and anxiety that's just been magnified by excessive exposure to media that just sort of this drumbeat of negativity. Social media, of course, has not helped. People who use studies, numerous studies have been shown, people who use, especially young people, uh, social media sites like Instagram, uh, comparing themselves more social anxiety. Even though our society focuses more on mental health like never before, it seems like our ability to cope with any stress is lower than ever before. The solutions that are put forward by our secular society do not seem to be making things better, but actually making things worse. Telling people to focus more on their anxiety, more on their problems, does not seem to be the solution to this epidemic we have of anxiety. We're, we're a fragile society, aren't we? I've heard terms in recent years like snowflakes and people who need safe spaces and people who are easily triggered by even the slightest hint of anxiety or facing an opinion they don't agree with or being reminded of a past event. We don't cope well. Instead, as a society, and I would say as individuals, maybe even in this room, we find ourselves spiraling into deeper and deeper states of panic and anxiety and worry and even depression. On an individual level, many are worried and anxious about the, the future of our country. Polls, poll after poll shows that Americans are extremely pessimistic and uncertain about the future. Gone are the days when people would declare that the best days of America are ahead. Most think that those are behind. People worry about their retirement and the stock market and what about my 401k and will I have enough to, to make it through? What about my kids? What kind of future will they go into? We worry about our finances. We worry about inflation. We worry about wars. We worry about what people might think about us on social media or how many likes we will get on a post or how many people will view our Instagram page. We worry about our health. We worry about our grades in college. We worry about our jobs. So many things that, that we, we pick up, so many burdens that we carry. And maybe even this morning, these, you're, you're coming into church with, with all of these, weigh, these weighing on your mind. You can definitely feel that anxiety is a 21st century, first world kind of problem, right? That, we, that this is our new thing and that we need to deal with this. But as we approach Luke chapter 12, we find out that this is a universal human problem. Here's Jesus writing in a in the first century, in a world that was far simpler than ours. You see, it's easy for us to say, well, anxiety has really been caused by social media. If we got rid of social media, anxiety would go away. And I'll be willing to, to, to admit that it certainly magnifies it. It certainly makes it more difficult. But that's not the cause of it. We might say, well, if we could just get rid of the, the mainstream media, then anxiety would go away. Or if we could just go back to simpler times when we had less and life was just more basic and we didn't have to deal with technology. Yet here's Jesus speaking to a bunch of people in the year 30, 33 A.D., telling them, do not be anxious, do not be consumed with worry. Luke chapter 12, just to remind you where we're at, Jesus is on his journey to Jerusalem. Luke kind of slows down the pace of the narrative. We kind of go into a blow-by-blow -blow account as Jesus takes one step after another, going to Jerusalem, moving towards the cross. And as he's on the road, he's got disciples who are traveling with him. And just to remind you, as they travel, they're not really staying in hotels. There's not Motel 6s or Hiltons or resorts to stay in. They're, they're utterly dependent on the hospitality of people who are inclined to support the mission and the ministry of Jesus. They don't know where the next meal is going to come from. They don't know where the next night will be spent. And so Jesus says to his disciples in verse 22, he said to his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought 
for your life what ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. For the life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. He says, don't worry about food, don't worry about clothing, don't worry about these basics in life. So to Jesus' audience, this was a very real concern. There were very real anxieties they faced about where the next meal would be eaten, where the next night would be spent. They're traveling to Jerusalem. But don't forget there's another audience here. There's not just the audience that Jesus is speaking to directly. There's the audience that Luke is writing to, right? This is not just a, here's a random account, but Luke is writing to Theophilus. He's writing to perhaps a group of Christians living in the first century who are facing the real specter of persecution. I could lose my job for being a Christian. I could be ostracized from society. I could be sort of demonized. I could even lose my life. And Luke is saying, through, through the words of Jesus, through Luke, saying to them, saying to us over the centuries, don't be consumed with anxiety. The fact that Jesus is addressing this in the first century to people as they're on the road, living a very simple life, tells us that anxiety is not a 21st century problem. This is not a new thing. We might just have more tools to sort of recognize it and diagnose it and label it. Rather, anxiety is rooted in our sinful hearts as we try to navigate a fallen world over which we feel that we have very little control. What I want to do here in these verses, down to verse 34, and this may spill over into next week. We'll just see how we manage the clock today. I want to see Jesus' answer to anxiety. He's going to give us five answers to anxiety. And it's not just pick one of these, but these sort of sequentially build on each other. Five answers to anxiety. This is falling in a chapter where Jesus is warning people of seven deadly spiritual dangers. Beginning of Luke chapter 12, he warned against hypocrisy. Then he warned against fear. Then he warned against shame. A couple weeks ago, we looked at how he warned against greed. And now he's going to warn against anxiety, against, against worry. So how do we answer anxiety? How does Jesus answer anxiety? By the way, if there's one person who should know how to answer anxiety, it's Jesus. He's the creator. He's God. We should take his word over anything that society or psychologists or the American Psychological Association would tell us. Jesus is the expert. He's the expert in the condition of the human soul and in the makeup of the human mind. So what's the first step? The first step is this. Accept God's assessment of worry. Accept his assessment of worry. Verse 22, he's speaking to his disciples. Therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life. You're like, no, I don't see the word worry in here. Well, that phrase translated, take no thought, is simply translating the Greek word for anxiety or worry. We might read that and be like, I don't even think about it. Just be easy, happy-go-lucky. Don't worry, be happy. Like, don't think about your... He's not saying don't think about it. He's saying don't be consumed with it. So it might help you just to jot into the margin of your Bible and underline take no thought. This means do not worry. Do not be anxious. The, the word is used 19 times in the New Testament. It's, it appears four times in this paragraph. It is the theme of this paragraph. The word means this. It means to be apprehensive, to have anxiety, to be anxious, to be unduly concerned. We're not just talking about the passing thought about, you know, what will I have for dinner, or I need to make a plan for the future. This is Jesus, just to be very clear, he is not forbidding making a plan. He's not saying it's wrong to have insurance or retirement, to take no thought. No, he's forbidding being consumed right now with worry and anxiety. It is wise to make plans. The prudent man foreseeth the evil, right? The prudent man makes plans for the future. So he's not forbidding making plans. He's not forbidding having a job and having a savings account or any of those things. What he is forbidding, what he is prohibiting is being consumed by worry or anxiety. Anxiety can be defined this way, in a more contemporary way. It is the mind and body's reaction to stressful, dangerous, or unfamiliar situations. It's the sense of uneasiness, distress, or dread you feel before a significant event. It's oriented towards the future. Put it in sort of common vernacular, anxiety is just thinking things over and over and over again, where you're just on this vicious cycle where you can't get off the merry-go-round, where you can't get off the roller coaster. It's running through the endless what-ifs, what-if, 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 over and over again. It is fixating on an unknown future. You ever do that? Does that sound familiar to you? I, I, I've been there before. All of us have been there before. We, we live in an uncertain world. Not a single one of us can know what will happen tomorrow. Nobody, right? Nobody can guess, how's the war in Ukraine going to turn out? Nobody has a clue. Nobody knows what the stock market will look like a year from now. We don't even know for certain what the weather will do tomorrow, right? Like, this, the, the future is so uncertain. That's what generates worry is this uncertainty about the future. Now, here's the point that Jesus is making. Notice what he says, take no thought for your life. This is a command. This is a prohibition. This is an imperative in Greek. 
Here's what I want us to understand as we accept God's assessment of anxiety and worry. This is key. Worry is spiritually rooted. Okay, it is a spiritually rooted problem that has physical effects. And here's what we tend to do today. We, it, when psychologists look at anxiety, they're looking at it through a materialistic lens. That, that, that's sort of the basic assumption is that we're just sort of sacks of chemicals on our ways to becoming stardust. And they can rightly recognize the physical effects of anxiety. And so they put a label on it, say that's an anxiety disorder. But that label is simply descriptive. It does not explain why. We need to understand that. You say, why do I have anxiety? Well, I have anxiety because I have anxiety disorder. No, anxiety disorder is simply a label put on to describe a behavior. It'd be like saying, why are you sick? Well, I'm sick because I have the flu. It's just sort of, it's, it's, a, it's a label. So while the label is not wrong, the label does not have any explanatory power. All right? So psychologists, doctors can recognize the physical aspects of anxiety. And there are physical effects of anxiety, like panic attacks, racing heart rates, hyperventilation, sleeplessness. Those are physical expressions of something that is spiritually rooted. And we're forced here this morning to say, are we going to accept the Bible's assessment of anxiety or the world's assessment of anxiety? Do we believe that the Bible is truly sufficient for all that pertains to life and godliness? Do we believe that? Or do we need to say, no, the Bible has it wrong. We're going to go and find out what is being said in the secular world. Again, not discounting that there's value to be learned from the secular world in looking at the physical effects. But ultimately, anxiety, worry, is a spiritual problem with physical effects. So when Jesus mentions it here, we don't need to read all of the modern clinical categories and definitions of the text. We're dealing with a spiritual problem. Here's the other aspect of this assessment we need to understand. Notice the first word Jesus says in verse 22. Do you notice that? He said to his disciples, therefore, I say to you. Now, when you see a therefore, we've all heard the phrase. When you see a therefore, you need to see what the therefore is therefore. The previous paragraph, he dealt with a materialism that expresses itself in greed. You notice how similar the statement is in verse 23. The life is more than meat, the body than raiment. Compare this to what he says in verse 15. Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesses. In other words, Jesus is forging a link between the sin of greed and the sin of worry. Right? He's saying the same thing that leads to greed is the same thing that leads to worry. Greed and worry are weeds that grow in the same soil. Right? They, they breathe in, they're, they're organisms that breathe in the same oxygen. And what is that oxygen? What is that soil? It is materialism. Right? So as we accept God's assessment of worry, we need to recognize it's spiritually rooted. But at a fundamental level, worry is an expression of materialism. Worry is based on the idea that here and now and physical life is really all that matters and is the entire frame of reference. That's what that, that word therefore connects us to. Now, we might be like, I don't see a connection between someone who's greedy and someone who worries. But to Jesus, they are both expressions of a worldview called materialism. Now, when I use the word materialism, I don't just mean someone who is, well, they're really materialistic and they like lots of stuff. Materialism is this worldview that reduces sort of reality and what is important in priorities to just stuff and the here and now. They may be tangible, they may, may be intangible, but the frame of reference is just life here. These 70 years we have sucking oxygen on this big ball of dirt. That's materialism. So here's the connection between these two paragraphs. In verses 13 to 21, Jesus is dealing with the materialism of the rich, right? And their materialism will say we need to get stuff. Verses 22 to 34, he's dealing with what we might call the materialism of the poor, which says, I, I don't have stuff, therefore I am worried. You see the connection? So verse 22 Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, or for your body, what you shall put on. Food and clothing, these are the most basic staples of life. Food, clothing, we might include here shelter, the things I need to survive. You say, man, if there was something that's legitimate to worry about, it would be the stuff that I need to live, right? That seems to be okay. And Jesus is saying, don't even worry about the most basic necessities of life. That is an incredibly high standard. So when survival is ultimate you will worry and fret over your health. When success is ultimate, you'll become anxious over the possibility of failure. When people's approval is the key measure of your worth, then losing it will generate anxiety. Do you see the connection between our frame of reference, the here and now, popularity, wealth, success, 
and those things fueling anxiety. What do, you, what do you tend to worry about? What you tend to worry about tells me what is most important to you. There's a connection between our values and the things we worry about. So simply put, anxiety comes from a materialistic worldview. It comes from a temporal frame of reference. It is short-sighted. But here's the other thing we need to understand about the divine assessment of worry. It's spiritually rooted. Spiritual problem, physical, physical evidences, physical results. It's materialistic, limited frame of reference. But worry is also selfish and self-focused. Now, I noted already, take no thought for your life in verse 22. Imperative, don't do it. Jesus says, he forbids us to be anxious. He requires us to fight anxiety and banish it. In other words, indulging in anxiety is sinful. Now look at verse 28. If God then so clothes the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Notice these words, O ye of little faith. As Jesus sort of plums down, he says, anxiety is a lack of faith. It is focusing on myself rather than on God. And what Jesus will do in the rest of this paragraph is to call us away from focusing on ourselves to focusing on God. This is what is fundamentally different between the Bible's answer to anxiety and the world's answer to anxiety. The world's answer will say, go to therapy and just talk and talk and talk and focus. Put a mirror up and look at yourself more and more. The Bible will say, the reason you have anxiety is you're, you're so absorbed on yourself. You need to look away from yourself to Christ. Cast your care on him because he cares for you. Now, I'll just say this. It's not a sin to suddenly face that sudden, you know, twinge of, oh, no, I'm worried. But it is a sin to indulge in it rather than running to Christ. When we are consumed with anxiety, our focus is where? It is on ourselves. It is fear for my feelings, my future, my safety, my family, not on God. And so what Jesus will do here is say, accept God's assessment, and then you'll say, look away to the things that matter, that are important, that are priorities to God's word. You understand this, right, that anxiety so often fuels other sins. Out of anxiety and worry, we'll refuse to speak God's word. God says, go tell people about Jesus. Well, I'm, I'm worried. I, I, I'm anxious about it, so I won't. Anxiety will lead us to be irritable. If I'm oh, consumed with worry and your, your spouse says something and you kind of snap and get, get it, it fuels and leads to other sins. It's not a sin that ever exists in isolation. It can lead us to be frustrated, to be greedy, to hoard instead of give. So as we accept God's assessment, understand that so long as we view anxiety as merely a physical disorder or a psychological disorder, so long as we view it as a personality trait or an individual proclivity or the result of genetics or the result of nurture or upbringing, we won't ever be able to answer it. I'll say that those assessments of anxiety actually lead to hopelessness. God is the great physician of the soul, right? He is able to answer the needs of the soul. If I locate anxiety in something that I have no control over, well, my genetics, I have no control over that. That's hopeless. That's to say I'm always going to be here and there's nothing I can do about it. But if I say, no, the, the ultimate origin of this is in a sin problem, then there is an answer to it, right? There is an answer to sin problems, and it's called the blood of Jesus Christ. So accepting God's assessment of anxiety actually gives us hope. Verse 25, notice what Jesus says here. Which of you, by taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Jesus is saying quite simply, at the bottom of it, anxiety is a complete and utter waste of time. Has anybody here ever worried themselves into happiness? Like, the more I worry, the happier I am. No, it doesn't work that way. Do you ever worry a single minute onto your life to lengthen your life? Actually, the opposite is true. Uh, many, many people are recognizing that anxiety will actually shorten your life, right? Will actually reduce your life. That's what Jesus is saying. Can you, by anxiety, add to your life a cubit? Add an hour to your life? Will worrying add to your life at all? The answer is no. It is completely worthless and a waste of time. It is fruitless. So can worry lengthen your life? It can't. And here's the, here's the silly thing. We all know this, right? You don't need me to tell you worry is a waste of time. Yet we still get onto the, into the worry roller coaster and ride it around again and again and again. Why is that? Because worry is rooted in a worldview. We need to go after the worldview if we want to get off the ride. Worry is our absurd attempt to try to assert control over, the, over a world that we can't control instead of recognizing God's authority. So that brings us to the second step. I know that was a lengthy first step, but I think it's very, very important that we get a biblical assessment of anxiety, of worry. 
Accept God's assessment of it, that it's spiritually rooted, that it's materialistic in its outlook, that it's self-focused, that it's ultimately fruitless. But now that sets us up to come to an answer. We often don't accept answers until we recognize, oh, that's the problem. Like if the doctor rolled in and was like, hey, just so you know, we're going to amputate your left arm. You'd be like, I like my left arm. I'm kind of attached to my left arm. I need my left arm. But if they told you that, no, if we don't take off the left arm, man, there's, there's some horrible gangrene or something that's going to, it, it could kill you. Until we get the assessment, we're not really ready to get the cure. Jesus gives us the assessment. We understand what's actually going on here. Now, here's the, here's the answer. Second step is this, trust God's providence. Right, if at the bottom of worry and anxiety is lack of faith, then the answer is going to involve faith. So beginning in verse 24, he mentioned two fundamental worries, okay, about food and about clothing, those most basic necessities. Most of our other worries are sort of iterations of those, okay, finances, I need finances to get food and, and clothing, or the future, it's food, clothing, those are the basic needs of life. He's going to answer these two concerns with two illustrations that point us to trust his providence. Consider verse 24, the ravens or the crows, okay, the carrion birds. Um, by the way, these were unclean to the Jews. He's not, he's not picking, consider the eagles and the be- how beautiful. No, he's picking the most nasty bird that eats dead stuff, the, the turkey vultures, right? He's like, hey, think about them. For they neither sow nor reap, neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowl? And jump down to verse 27. Consider the lilies, consider the flowers, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. Yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? So, big worries, clothing, food. He says, look at nature, look how God provides food for the birds and clothing for the flowers. And by the way, you're way more valuable than birds or flowers. Don't you think God will take care of you? So consider the ravens, consider their provision. Think how God takes care of them. Jesus deliberately selects this unclean scavenger bird that the Jews would have been like, ugh, yuck. And he's saying, yeah, God even watches them. Look at the birds, he says. They're not farming, right? Verse 24, they don't sow or reap. Remember the previous story? He talked about the rich man who had his fields. He tore down his barns and built bigger barns. Like, yeah, the birds don't do that. They're, they're not consumed with worry. They don't farm. They don't hoard. Birds, I, I go on a walk every morning, and about sunrise, the birds all wake up. They start singing. And, you know, not one time has a bird flown over to me and been like, hey, Sam, did you see the stock market today? Like, they, they don't do that. They don't fret over their 401ks. They don't obsess over politics. Right? There were a lot of people after the last election that were just, oh, it's all over. And then you go outside, and the birds were still singing, and the sun still rose. It was incredible, right? They don't obsess over politics. They don't lose sleep over inflation. They're not even on Twitter. They're, not, they're tweeting, but not that kind of way. They simply sing away happily day in and day out, and God cares for them. In spite of the birds' complete lack of any farming ability, in spite of their lack of agri- agriculture or financial prowess, God provides for them. How does he do it? Well, he sends spring, and the rains start to fall, and the grass begins to grow, and they, they go and get worms out of the dirt. I guess the early ones get more of them or something like that. There's this whole ecosystem of bugs that God has designed for the existence of the birds. They can eat all the little mosquitoes and flies and whatever else birds eat. But an incredibly intricate ecosystem that God has designed that allows the birds to exist. And guess what? He does all of it without a single ounce of anxiety on their part. Now to us, it's like, well, that's natural. That's just kind of natural law doing what it does. When Jesus speaks this way and he says, God provides for them, he is asserting something about our world. He's not just using that in sort of hyperbolic, sort of, well, poetic language. God cares for them and there's these natural laws of science that just happen. No, God is actively upholding this world in such a way that every bird is cared for exactly as God intends. You see, we take it for granted that these things happen, but for Jesus... He looks at birds and he looks at the world and he sees a place that is a God-entranced world. He says even the diets of birds are the work of God. Every insect eaten by every bird is created by God and is doing his will. There are no, to quote R.C. Sproul, there are no renegade molecules. This is God's providence. He's actively involved in his creation. He sends the rain. 
He takes the rain away. He causes the sun to rise and to set. He causes the earth to rotate on its axis. All the things that we take for granted that are so stable that we call them laws of science are actually the working of God. When I say providence, I mean more than God simply providing. Oh, he'll meet your needs. I mean an intricate, comprehensive control and ruling over this world that works in such a way that every bird is provided for. So when Jesus has considered the birds, he's not just saying, oh, look, they're, they're really cute. This is really cool poetry. He's saying God actively controls the creation. That should comfort our hearts to know that God is in control, that he is working all things according to the counsel of his will. But he doesn't stop there. Notice the end of verse 24. How much more are ye better than the birds? Like You're, you're more valuable to God than birds. If God works the entire ecosystem in such a way that the birds survive... There's this whole food chain thing going on. So they can survive. So they can lay their eggs. So they can raise their young and all those things. God does that for a bunch of grubby birds that we think are, oh, yuck, don't touch them. How much more will he take care of those who are made in his own image? How much more will he care for those who are redeemed with his son's blood? How much more will he care for those who are indwelled by his Holy Spirit? Beloved, we have the very imprint of the triune God upon us. And he values us, and he loves us to such an extent that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. To say that, oh, God's not going to care for us. I need to worry and obsess about it is to call into question the very goodness and the love and the kindness of God. He makes a similar point about the, about the lilies, the birds. saying, okay, God's caring for the birds, he's caring for the flowers. By the way, he's not saying, good, now you can just sort of sit around like the birds do and do nothing. God will care for you. The, Jesus is not commending a life of laziness and carelessness. He is prohibiting a life of anxiety and worry. So numerous texts call us to work. The normal way that God meets our needs is through a job. So he's not saying just sit around at home and wait for God to just sort of drop food and stuff in your lap and just kind of pray. He calls us to put feet to our prayers. So 1 Thessalonians 4.11, I think, gives us a good balance. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says this, Study to be quiet and to do your own business. In other words, don't get meddling in other people's affairs and stir it up with anxiety. How much of our anxiety comes from putting our noses into stuff that's none of our business, right? Being concerned about stuff over which we have no control. And he says, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you walk honestly toward them that are without, that you may have lack of nothing. In other words, he's saying, hey, focus on the responsibilities God's given to you. Do your job. That's how he'll provide for you. So he's not saying don't work or work, you know, do, take care of your... your your bills, but he's saying don't give into a life of worry. We are to work, not worry. So he says, consider the lilies back here in, in Luke 12. Consider the lilies, verse 27, how they grow. Have you ever watched how a flowers grow? Like back in February, there were no flowers. Now you drive down the road, and there's beautiful wildflowers growing on the side of the road that we don't even notice. So they toil not, and they spin not. Okay, I've never, ever seen a flower go out and be like, let's go collect cotton. We need to spin some thread and make, you know, make ourselves look beautiful. Not at all. He says they, they don't spin thread. They're not making clothes. Yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory not, was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon is sort of the king par excellence in the Bible. Like when they think of kings, they're like, boom, Solomon. Man, he's like, when we think of kings, there's a picture of Solomon in the dictionary. He's got beautiful robes on. He's just arrayed in the finest stuff. Think of the you know, the Queen of England on Coronation Day, those elaborate robes and the crown and the crown jewels and all of the music and all the stuff that goes along with it. He says, even the finest fashion cannot compare to what God does for the flowers. Have you ever just taken a flower, picked it, and just studied the complexity and the symmetry and the richness of color and the beauty of it? You think, oh, that seems really childish and sort of like some weird sentimental poet... Do it sometime. Jesus calls us to consider the flowers. Go on a walk this afternoon, find some flowers, and just take like five minutes and study it and, and marvel at the beauty that God has put into his creation. And then consider this. That flower that you picked just died. Flower murderer. Okay, you just picked that flower, it died. By tonight, it will be wilting and all the petals will be falling off of it and it'll be no more. What Jesus is saying, God arrays the flowers in magnificent beauty and some of them just last for a single day. In, in Palestine, you know, springtime rolls around, you have the winter rains, and the flowers sprout up, it's beautiful. Then summertime comes, and they're scorched, they're gone, they're, they're, they're no more. Because they, they're more beautiful than Solomon, but they're brief in their existence. Verse 28, God clothes the grass, 
It's in the field today, and tomorrow's cast into the oven. So you're cooking food in, the, in Palestine. You need some, some fuel. Getting some just grass with a little bit of flour, something really quick, some kindling. So it's just thrown in the oven. It is forgotten. Consider the billions of flowers that clothe hillsides all over the world that nobody ever sees. God puts them there. He clothes them with beauty. So that should be a reminder of how God will clothe and provide for us. If God cares for the temporary grass, why would he not care for his eternal people? He says, your your life is more than food and raiment. It has more value than the birds. It is of longer lasting permanence than the flowers. So again, Jesus is saying more than, hey, God will provide for you. Don't worry about it. What he is saying is you live in a universe that is meticulously governed and run and ordained from the order of the throne of heaven. That there's not a flower that's that's springing out of the dirt anywhere on the planet that's doing anything other than the will of God. There's not a a bird that falls from the heaven, from the skies, that doesn't fall without the creator knowing it. Imagine how different our lives would be if we really recognize God's in control and not us. Most worry and anxiety comes from the fact that we want to be in control. It is our futile attempt to try to take control over things that we have no control over. Just frantic. I'm going to try try to be in control, and, and we don't have any control. What if we instead recognize that everything that comes into our life is ordained by God? What if instead we recognize he is in control, and whatever he ordains is best? What if we lived with the lens of Romans 8.28? Look through that lens. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God. All things, right? Sickness, disease, cancer, pain, COVID-19, pandemics, political turmoil, all of these things, God doesn't, God's not sitting up in heaven being like, oh, no, I didn't, I don't know what I'm going to do about this one. We need to call a council together with the angels and come up with a plan B. That is not how he operates. What if instead of getting anxious, when stuff doesn't go our way, we step back and say, okay, God's in control. He's got a purpose for this. John Newton one time wrote this. The guy, this guy who wrote Amazing Grace, he wrote this as well. How happy are they who can resign all to him, see his hand in every dispensation, and believe that he chooses better for them than they possibly could for themselves. When we get anxious, what we are saying is, God, you messed up. You messed up. You didn't give me what was best. I have a better idea. Let me try to, to fix things. Again, we are not calling ourselves to a life of passivity where we just kind of sit back like stoics and be like, well, what's going to happen is going to happen. But we should recognize in every change he faithful will remain. We should be recognizing that he is working all things for our good and his glory. So if we live life with the assumption that we are ultimately decisive, then we will live a life where we are constantly worried and anxious. So we need to drive out anxiety with a robust commitment and a robust confidence in God's providence, God's purposeful sovereignty, God's meticulous control of all his creation. Control that that extends all the way down from the turning of the planet all the way down to grubby crows and lowly flowers. That is how we drive out anxiety. So how do we deal with anxiety? How does Jesus answer anxiety? The first answer is this, accept God's assessment of it. Second answer, the second step, is to embrace and trust his providence. Third step is to seek God's kingdom. Beginning in verse 29. And seek not what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be of doubtful mind, for all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather, seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. So now we get another verb that gets repeated over and over again. We noted earlier that we had the word, don't be anxious, take no thought. Now we get this verb, seek, that that ties these verses together. He says, seek God's kingdom. When we were assessing anxiety, I said, one of the the problems with anxiety is it's very self-focused. My problems, my concerns, how, how I feel. You know, the only way to stop thinking about yourself is to think about someone else. And the someone else that we should fix our mind on is God and his kingdom. He says, seek God's kingdom. Now, we get a don't do this, but do do this. So he says, don't be seeking after what you'll eat or what what you'll drink. Now, he's not saying quit your job and don't worry about it, but he is saying don't fixate on these things. This word seek, 
the idea of seeking, looking for, devoting serious effort to realize one's desire or objective. It is to strive for, aim at, try to obtain. It is to desire, wish for. It's the idea of being fixated. You understand this, what we are fixated on, what we are seeking after, reveals what we love. Right? What is of ultimate importance to us? So don't be seeking after what you will eat or what you will drink. You're fixated, and that's just consuming my focus and my job and my work. Isn't that so much of the, the ground from which our anxiety springs? So Jesus is not forbidding our getting food and drink. He is forbidding our fixating on food and drink. Obviously, we need food and drink to survive. And he points out, God knows that you need food and drink. He knows that you need shelter. He knows that you need finances. He says, don't be of a, of a doubtful mind. It ties into what he just said about a little faith. This is an interesting word. It, it doesn't show up in the New Testament anywhere else. It has the idea of being in midair, sort of suspended being, I, I don't know which way, which way it's going to go. It, it's related to the idea of worry, but a different picture of don't be always suspended of being what's going to happen next and being afraid. He's saying dominating anxiety does not befit the believer. He put it this way, anxieties reveal affections. Anxieties reveal affections. What I am most anxious about is ultimately what I truly love the most. So he's saying if you're seeking after food and drink and just things of this physical world and a better life and all these things to be just right here, right now, he's saying that's really what you, what you love. But verse 30, he goes on. For here's the reason that you shouldn't do that. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knoweth that ye need, have need of these things. We get this emphasis on, on you, and, and it, this comes across a little more clearly in the original, but here's the idea. It's sort of like, you do not seek after these things. For your father, there's this emphasis on your, your, you are different than the rest of the world. That's what he's saying in verse 30. All the nations of the world, those who don't know God, those who have this temporal frame of reference, those who truly are materialistic, says that's how they live. We're to live different, beloved. This is our identity. What we seek does not simply show what we love, but it shows who we are. The lost world fixates on food and fun and entertainment and just bigger and better. But he says, beloved, we are different. We are people of the king. We are people of the cross. And the things we are fixated on should be different. If you are a Christian, it means this. Your heart has been transformed. You've been born again. You have a new nature. You have a new set of affections. You're controlled by a different longing. We're not defined by just the here and now, but the yet to come. By the way, if that is not true of you, you say, my, my longings and my desires are sort of no different than anyone else's. I, could it be that you're not actually a Christian? There are a lot of Christians in name only who say, yep, I'm a believer who profess to have faith in Christ, but do not possess faith in Christ. And one of the litmus tests will be this. What do you love what do you long for? Have you been born again? It should concern us if, you're, if your goals are no different than the goals of your lost neighbor. If your desires and your value system is no different than someone who doesn't know Jesus, that should raise serious concerns about the state of your soul. So here's our identity. We're people of the kingdom with different longings and different, a different love. But this is kind of interesting, right? Verse 30, um, he says, your father knows you have need of these things, but rather seek the kingdom. So a kingdom presupposes that there is a king, and we find out here that the king is our father. That's pretty sweet. That we have, as our father, the king of heaven. Our father is the king, which means we are sons and daughters of the king, which means we are princes and princesses in God's kingdom. And he knows what we need to survive, shouldn't lose sight of what Jesus said earlier in, in Luke 11, verse 2. He says, when you pray, say, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Give us day by day our daily bread. Okay, how do we, how do we have our, get our daily bread? How do we get the food and shelter and things we need? We ask for it. We go to our Father, and Jesus goes on to say, he's, he's a loving Father who will give the things that you need. This is our identity. We are sons of the King. So how we relate to stuff reveals who we are. How do you relate to stuff? What is your attitude towards this world? Does it reveal the fact that you think of yourself as a child of the king? Or do you simply act like you're a child of the world? 
Now, verse 31 brings us the famous positive statement, but rather, rather than seeking food and drink, rather than fixating just on the next meal, seek ye the kingdom of God. So be, be seeking. Make this, this is the ultimate object, the ultimate aim in your life, is to seek the kingdom of God. Now, what is the kingdom? The kingdom is the rule and the authority of God in the hearts of the redeemed. There's a sense in which the kingdom is now. When we come to faith in Jesus, we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. Jesus is king in our lives. Jesus is king of Cloverleaf Baptist Church. It's a recognition of his authority in every area of our lives. That's one sense of seeking the kingdom. But don't we pray thy kingdom come, right? If it's, all, if it's here completely and totally right now, why do we pray thy kingdom come? Because we are looking for a day when Jesus will split the eastern skies and come back and defeat every enemy and establish his kingdom on earth and rule forever. So seeking the kingdom means both of those things. I want to realize his rule now in my life as I submit everything to Christ. I want to see his rule expand now as others are brought into the kingdom, as missions expand, as I make disciples for Jesus. But my eye is on the future, on the eternal state. That is what I am longing for. To seek the kingdom is to say, I trust God's promises to bring the kingdom in and to reward his people. So on a practical level, how do I go about seeking the kingdom? Well, first it means I seek his rule to realize his rule more and more in my life. It should be daily times of getting into the word and praying and asking God to rule my life and rule every corner of it and all my hobbies and all of my priorities. Second, it's going to mean being engaged actively in the Great Commission. The kingdom grows and expands as people are told about the the gospel of Jesus, as they repent and believe, and as they are brought to maturity in Christ. And every one of us should be involved in that. That's not the job of just the pastors. That's the job of every Christian to be engaged in the work of discipling, of helping other people find and follow Jesus. I'll say a third way we engage in advancing the kingdom is worship. When we worship as believers... We're, we're, we're getting a little taste of heaven when we sing together, because that's what we'll be doing for eternity. We're worshiping Jesus. We're saying, I believe your kingdom is going to come so certainly that I'm going to gather with other believers week in and week out and look forward to it. Thy kingdom come. Every time we gather, it's as if it's plastered over us a declaration that we believe the kingdom of Jesus is coming. Now, Jesus promises, and you'll have all these other things. All these other things will be added to you. This is not a health, wealth, and prosperity promise. Understand this. This is not a... Well, if you put Jesus first, God will give you a bunch of really nice jet skis. You put Jesus first, you'll prosper and get a promotion. This is not a a, a promise of, well, if you tithe and if you sow a seed of $1,000, God will give you. This this verse has been so butchered and misused by health, wealth, and prosperity gospel people. This is not what he is saying, but he is saying when you prioritize the kingdom of God, he will give you the resources you need to do it, right? We need daily bread to survive. I need to survive in order to advance the kingdom. God will give us what we need. So if your son comes to you and says, I need to mow the lawn. He's like, okay, here's the lawnmower, son. He says, can I get gas for the lawnmower? Of course. Why? Because he's carrying out your purposes. When we as Christians are carrying out God's purposes in the world, we say, give us this day our daily bread. Would you provide me with a house in which to raise my family? Would you provide me a vehicle with which to go to work so I can earn this money so I can bring you glory? Of course he's going to give us those things for his own glory. So if... Worry, anxiety, is at a fundamental level, self-focus. The only way to drive that out is to focus on the kingdom, right? To put the focus on the kingdom. Say, I'm struggling so much with anxiety, I just can't come to church anymore. You're shooting yourself in the foot. You're, you're cutting off the limb you're sitting on. And I've had people tell me that. They'll say, you know, I can't come to church. Pastor, I'm sick. And I've been like, oh, no, man, I'm so sorry. What's wrong? Struggling with anxiety. We put it in this category of sickness and and therefore I won't go and take advantage of the medicine God has created, doesn't make any sense to say I can't go to the doctor because I'm sick. What? What are you talking about? This is a hospital. The church is a hospital for those who are struggling, for those who are weak, for those who need the medicine of God's truth, those who need the medicine of worship, who need the medicine of singing together with other people. Don't let anxiety be the excuse from taking advantage of the answer. But fourth, here's the fourth step. And we're just going to look at verse 32 on this one. We've got to accept God's assessment. We've got to trust God's providence. We've got to seek God's kingdom. Verse 32 tells us we must delight in God's sufficiency. I love this little verse. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
Now, this is interesting. Verse 31, he said, seek the kingdom. Keep reaching for it. And now he says, by the way, God has given it to you. You're like, what, is, it, is it something I seek after, or is it a gift that I enjoy? And the answer is yes. One of the ways I know that God has given me the kingdom is I'll have a longing to seek the kingdom. We seek it not so that we can attain something we don't have. We seek it because we already have it. But I love that statement, fear not, little flock. What's one of the reasons we feel so anxious? It's because we, we feel so little in a big, crazy world that seems to be whirling out of control around us. I turn on the news, you're like, man, it's getting wicked, it's crazy, there's all this stuff going on. We fret, we worry, we're, like, man, we're just this little group of people, like what difference can we make? And the answer on a human level is not much, right? By the way, worrying is not going to add to it. So what, what, what do we do? He says, fear not. Little flock. There's a recognition that we are little, that we are weak. And there's this admonition to fear not. He's saying delight in God's sufficiency. You see, if, if we're called a little flock, who does that mean? tell us who God is? Tells us that he's the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. Psalm 23 is a declaration of God's sufficiency, that God is enough. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I shall not lack. He is everything that I need. Fear not, little flock. It's to say the Father is our tender shepherd. When you begin to find anxiety preying on your heart, when you begin to find worry stalking your soul, run to the shepherd, the one who says, I am enough for you. Now, what does a shepherd do? The shepherd guides the sheep. He provides for the sheep. He protects the sheep. Which says, God is our guide. He is our protector. He is our provider. He's the God, the God who will guide us into what to us is an uncertain future. He's the one who will protect us when we face danger. He's the one who will provide it for us when we face limitations. And as a shepherd, he is also king. Did you notice that? Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We get this sort of this correlation of all these different attributes of God. He's shepherd. He's father. He's king. And all of those things, he is father, shepherd, and king for us, on our behalf, for our good. And he is totally in control. If the stock market crashes, it is only because God ordained it. If the the political system completely fails, God ordained it. He is ultimately in control. Nothing gets by him. If your children become sick, maybe you say, I'm I'm dependent on my children to provide. What will happen if something happens to my kids and I'm now alone? Like, where will I be? God's in control of that. If disease ravages your body, God is in control of that. If your kids go through difficult times, God is in control of that. If your job changes where all of a sudden the rug's been pulled out out from under you, your good shepherd is in control of that. Our good shepherd is not just well-intentioned, but he is all-powerful. And he is working all things together for the good of his people. So whatever he brings is for my holiness. Whatever he sends is a sweet messenger of his grace. And whatever he ordains is for my good. There's also this idea in verse 32 that he is your father. He says, your father. He says, don't be afraid for reason. Here's the reason why we shouldn't be afraid. It's not just nice sentiment of like, oh, look, God's really nice. But it is the father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We're told previously, seek the kingdom. Here we find it as a grace gift. We seek what we have been given. You see, salvation is by grace through faith. But once we get salvation, we seek eagerly after the God who has given to it. We seek not to attain, but to enjoy. We are to possess what is promised. God's good pleasure means that God's not reluctantly being like, fine, give you the kingdom. I guess I kind of have to. The sun died on Finally, we sometimes get this idea that God's sort of this grumpy deity up in heaven who's just real stingy with his gifts. He's saying, no, it's his good pleasure. He delights to do this from eternity to sovereignly impart the kingdom to his people. The kingdom is ours, not because of our works, not because of our choices, not because of our abilities, not because of our effort. The kingdom is ours because of his grace. That's what verse 32 is saying. He's our king. He's our father. Delight in his sufficiency. So when worry comes along, run back to the God who is your shepherd and father. When anxiety raises doubts in your mind, remind yourself that you have fled for refuge to Christ. When worry raises doubts about your uncertain future, because it is uncertain to us, kill it with the promise of your certain eternity. I'll say that again. When worry raises doubts about your uncertain future, kill it with the promise of a certain eternity. That's what I mean by delighting in his sufficiency. But finally, 
The fifth step is this. Depend on God's promise. 33 says, sell what you have, give alms, provide for yourself bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth, for where your treasure is there will your heart be also. He's saying, set your eyes on the promise of God that he has promised you a certain eternity. Right? The stuff that we hang on to, the things that we look to for security and we fret about when we don't have them. It says, break that grip of possessions on your heart through generosity in confidence of God's promise. His promise that he'll care for you, but his promise, most importantly, we have the statement like, put your money into a, into a wallet that's not going to have holes in the bottom. You think I'd dumb that would be to put your money in a wallet that has a hole in the bottom. So that's what it's like trying to keep stuff now and hoard stuff now. He said, the way that you put money in a wallet that has no holes is to give it away, right? We give it and we serve other people and we further the work of the kingdom. Depending on the promise of God that there is a treasure in heaven that will not disappear. You give because you believe the promise of God and you invest your resources in kingdom work. You see, money is the index of the heart. Your budget is an expression of your priorities. It shows what you value, and it shows whether or not you really believe God. Do you really believe that what Jesus says here is true? Do you really believe that generosity means eternal joy? Or is there a sneaking suspicion in your heart that, well, what if it's not true? I better enjoy my, all my stuff here and now. We trust God's promise Ultimately, the answer to anxiety is God. It's not more self-reflection. It's not more self-focused introspection. The answer is not more therapy. The answer is not more of me. The answer is more of God. This would call us to say, confess our anxiety, our worry to God as sin. We could add other verses. Philippians 4 says, be anxious for nothing. But everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. 1 Peter 5, 7, we are to cast our cares on him, for he cares for us. We have to confess anxiety, worry, as sin to God. When it comes up, run to Jesus, confess it. Confess the unbelief that lies behind it and underneath it. And then drive them out with a focus on God really is in control. And he's in control in a far more pervasive, far more expansive, far more meticulous way than I could even begin to fathom. Trust his providence, trust his purposes, trust his promises, and say, I'm going to seek the kingdom first. For the, for the 40 millions in our country who are, whose lives have come to a screeching halt because of anxiety and worry, and maybe some here in this room, take this passage, chew on it, run to Christ. Father, may we be reminded this morning that we need you. We cannot live life without you. We cannot make it an hour with you without you. May we depend on you.